Welcome. Great to see so many people here. I was only joking last Sunday when I said to cancel your holiday plans and come for part two of the series, but if you did, uh, God bless you. It's great to see you. Uh, If you're visiting, this is part two of a sermon series in the life of Jacob uh, entitled How People Change. Uh, You may also know, although in churches like JICF, which are interdenominational, Uh, Sometimes we are less aware of our historical uh, Christian foundations. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, This is a service of worship that in many churches would focus particularly on the Holy Spirit. Fifty days sent after the resurrection, ascension of Jesus. And uh, so we want to honour God's Spirit, ask Him to speak to us this morning. Uh, We sang the words of that song in a moment. Your hand is seen in galaxies and yet your spirit dwells in me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for bringing us together. We praise you and bless you. We thank you for sending your spirit to make us alive again, uh, to give us joy and peace as we trust in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we do pray, Lord, that... uh, your spirit would speak to us as we read spirit-breathed words in the Bible. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the title of this series is How People Change, and just happens that in the June magazine of uh, Jakarta now, the question is asked on the front cover, can Jakarta really change? I wonder whether... You believe it can. Can it change, can it change now? Uh, I've lived in Jakarta for 20 years. It's changed a lot. When I arrived, the city was burning down. And now it's being built up and growing. But could you imagine Jakarta changing? A mega city that's more livable, cleaner rivers. Can you imagine that? Faster toll roads, can you imagine that? What about honest politics, can you imagine that? It's so important, isn't it, for real change to take place. Not just in cities, but in people. Eight billion people and counting. Uh, Jacob's life needed to be changed. Uh, He's on the run. He's made a mess. He's, he's running from the mess that he's made, and he's also running from himself. You know, many people are running from themselves. They never say it. They won't show it. But deep inside, that's actually what's happening in their hearts. And if you were here last week, you remember that Jacob starts the journey at the instigation of his mother, Rebekah, to go to the land of his uncle Laban in Syria, and on the way early in the journey, he lies down. He's a nowhere man, a no one, and he lies down at night, a rock for a pillow. Is this the blessed life he hoped for? when he stole the blessing from his brother. But there in that place, which will be called Bethel, the house of God, he, he meets with God. God uh, meets him in a dream, 
We read these words last week that he saw a stairway from heaven, or sorry, from earth to heaven with angels ascending and descending, and above it, the Lord. And the Lord said to him, I'll give you and your descendants this land. All peoples will be blessed through you. So God's going to bless the whole world through this no one who is nowhere. What we need to understand when we read the Bible is that the whole biblical story is controlled by God keeping his promises of love to his people. Everything that happens in Jacob's life, the good and the bad, in spite of his sinfulness and deceitfulness, over all of this, God is working out his purposes in the world and in your world and in my world in the incredible patience of his love as he pursues us as he chases our heart, just like we sang this morning in that song. God's pursuing Jacob. He's going to change Jacob so that Jacob will become that that man of blessing through whom his family, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. And of course, if you met the Lord in a dream at night... When you're in a hard place, like Jacob was, hard places become holy places when you meet the Lord there. I wonder, has that been your experience? Hard place, difficult time. God uses those moments here in this moment to meet us, to talk with us. And so we read the words, when Jacob awoke, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid. Well, he was afraid already before he came to this place. He was afraid of his brother, whom he has cheated. And now he's afraid of God, whom he's met here and now. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This sounds like a song you'd sing on a Sunday morning, doesn't it? But is he changed? Or is it just words? Is this just an echo of his family history, the family of faith, whom God has promised to bless? Grandfather Abraham, Father Abraham. Isaac, maybe you're the inheritor of a faith that came to you through your family and and you find it awesome, but are you changed? Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he'd placed under his head. He set it up as a pillar. He poured oil on it and called that place Bethel, the house of God. You see, what God is doing, and it's going to take two decades, 20 years. Today, you're going to journey for 20 years 
with Jacob as he goes to Syria. And through all the circumstances of his life, God is striving with this deceiver to change him. And and what God is doing is bringing this man ultimately to repentance. He's going to change the sadness of his sinful life, all his deception and cheating. He's going to change that man on the inside so that he will become a blessing to others. The problem with Jacob, even though he's blessed by God with a family promise of love, is that he's still a wheeler and a dealer. Have you heard of a book called The Art of the Deal? Well, the original author of that book was Jacob. He's the art of the deal master. You see, his faith is an if-then faith. I wonder if your faith is an if-then faith. God, if you do this, I'll do this. If God will be with me and watch over me on this journey. Now, God has already promised to be with him. If God will be with me on this journey, give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household. So he's taking in the whole journey, leaving the land, going to live in Syria, then one day return to his father's household. If that happens, the Lord will be my God. He doesn't know that he's going to be away 20 years. And I reckon 20 years is too long to be bargaining with God. Maybe you've been bargaining with God. Maybe your faith is an if-then faith. This stone I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. Of all you've given me, I'll give you a tenth. It's quite noble. It's sincere. He'll give a tenth, which is the tithe that his grandfather paid... But we know from the story that Jacob is yet to give God himself. Have you given God yourself? Or are you running away from yourself? As Jacob really is. You see, Jacob's the man who's always seeking an advantage for himself. He's the second son who wins first place. He he wants to arrange all the circumstances of his life so that he obtains the maximum benefit, even when he's dealing with God. I wonder, is our faith sometimes like that? He's about to spend two decades in exile. And as we said last week, he will never see his mother again. She sent him away. She feared losing both sons. She's going to lose this son. That is, she'll be lost to him. Her cunning, her planning, her scheming, 
will not bear fruit in her own life, she'll be sad. And she's sad even now as her son has left home and, and gone away. Well, after a hard night, that rock for a pillow and a long journey to Syria, we read, then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. But Jacob, the dealer, he thinks that life is smiling on him again. Because the Bible tells us in chapter 29 that the sun rises high in the sky. And there before him appears a beautiful young woman. And her name is Rachel. Jacob saw Rachel. This is where the music starts to play in the movies. Daughter of his uncle Laban. And he also saw Laban's sheep. Take very careful note of those two phrases. Those two phrases are going to shape and determine everything that happens in his life for the next 20 years. Women and wool. That's it. Two decades. Women and wool. He sees Rachel and he thinks, there's my future wife. And he sees Laban's sheep and he thinks, there's my future prophet. That's how he works. That's how he thinks. One eye on the girl and one eye on what he can get out of this relationship. Well, you are probably aware, but if you're not, you know that he's going to have more than one wife. And his first wife is the wife he least expects to have. And his wives and their disharmony, love rivals and hatred even for each other are going to bring great pain into Jacob's life. But they're also going to be the catalyst in his life for great change in his life. As soon as Laban heard the news that Jacob's in town, about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him, brought him to his home. There Jacob told him all these things. I wonder what he told him. I wonder what he told him. Did he tell him about that hard night sleeping on a rock when God met me in a dream? Is that what you'd say? I wonder, did he say that he's just cheated his brother out of his blessing and birthright at the instigation of Laban's own sister? I don't think he told him those things. You don't do that when you're a wheeler and a dealer. 
Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. And that's ironic. Because in the English language, we have an expression which is to get a pound of flesh out of someone. That means make them work very hard for you. And what Jacob doesn't realize is he has met his match in Uncle Laban because Uncle Laban is as much a deceiver as his sister, Rebecca, and his nephew, Jacob. This is a family of deceivers. Everyone's deceiving everyone else. You know, this is almost as if Jacob has left the promised land and he's moved out of the land and he's going to spend two decades as a virtual hired slave for his uncle. Does that remind you of anything? It should remind you of the people of Israel who are going to spend a much longer time as slaves until God brings them back into the land. And Jacob is not going to enter the land ever again until he has been changed and converted by God. You see, Abraham was told in the book of Genesis that your descendants are going to be enslaved. And Jacob's life is a prophecy of that. It's like the foretaste of what's going to happen in the future. And that's ironic, because centuries later, Jacob's descendants, the Jewish people, met Jesus, who said to them, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. Can you see the complete denial they are in? The people of Israel say to Jesus, we've never been slaves. Well, hang on. What about your slavery in Egypt? Hey, what about Jacob as the hired slave of Laban? You've been slaves. How can you say that we shall be free? Jesus replied, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Do you want to be changed by God? To be changed by God, you have to admit your real condition. And your real condition, the condition of the human race, is that we are runaways. We are not free, we are frightened. And we flee from God because of our sin. Human beings are slaves to sin, and they cannot free themselves. God must do this, just like God must do this for Jacob. But Jacob, as you know, he, he still believes he can bargain his way into God's blessing. And he says to Uncle Laban, I'll work seven years for you, 
in return for Rachel. They seemed like a few days because of his love for her. Wow. I wonder how many years you waited to marry your fiancé. Seven? Did you make a deal with your uncle? I'll work for you in the family business if it means I can marry your daughter. And of course, uh, well, this sounds like a good deal, except Laban is the arch deceiver. And on the wedding night, he swaps his daughters and gives, unbeknown to Jacob, the uglier one called Leah, all veiled, of course, because he can't see who she is. And as I understand in Middle Eastern weddings, says very little, so he won't distinguish her by her voice even. And then the shocking surprise. When the morning came, there was Leah. He's woken up in bed next to his fiancé's sister. I hope this hasn't been your experience. It was Jacob's real experience. And can you see the irony? There's irony everywhere. Why have you deceived me? Well, Jacob, that's what you've been doing your whole life. And you're surprised that someone else would act this way towards you? Well, let's make a deal. And that's exactly what they do. Laban says, well, finish the daughter's bridal week. And then we'll also give you the younger one. You can have both girls in return for another seven years of work. That's 14 years. Jacob did so. His love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. I hope this hasn't been your experience, ladies. I know in Indonesia, in some traditions, men can marry more than one woman. And I've had people say to me that they are the daughter of the second wife or the third and they experience great pain in their family life because what is Jacob doing? He's playing favourites, just like his parents played favourites when Esau and Jacob were young boys. The pattern is continuing. And if you read Genesis 29, which I encourage you to do, you will read the conflicting, sad story of the outworking of one woman being unloved and another woman being preferred. And I'm going to summarize it for you. Leah was miserable, unloved, lonely, and she felt dishonored. You know, she gave her husband four sons, and that wasn't enough 
for him to treat that marriage as if it was just some duty he had to perform. But of course, Rachel has her issues. She's infertile. She can't have children. She's filled with great pain and jealousy to the point of being suicidal. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister Leah. And so she said to Jacob, Give me children or I will die. You have to dwell on these texts for a little while to realise the real pain the emotional torture that is taking place within these women in this family. Two women, love rivals, competing for the affections of one man. Both women are deeply wounded people. Read Genesis 29. Leah says, to Rachel, you stole my husband. That's what she says. That's what she feels. And Rachel, you read her words about herself, and she says to Leah, you took my disgrace. You've got the kids. I'm barren. So they give Jacob their maidservants, their pembantus to sleep with them, to produce more children. What a family. This is the family through whom God is going to bless the whole world. It's a mess. Everyone is struggling with everyone. And God, don't forget, is struggling with all of them to fulfill His promises of love. Through this messed up family, 12 boys will be born. There'll be a daughter as well. But those 12 boys will form the nucleus of the nation of Israel, through whom will come Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. So here's the point. Don't despair. Don't despair. What is your family like this morning? Are you a wounded woman like these women were? Are you a man with love, interests, and rivals? Don't despair. God is working out His purposes in this family in the incredible patience of His love. Two decades of striving and pursuing Jacob's heart. You say, I want to change. Can I? Will I? I want my family to change. Will it ever? Don't despair. God is working out His purposes in the incredible patience of His love. Well, you've just experienced 20 years, two decades of family life in Jacob's household.
Now it's time to go home. It's time to go back to God. It's time to go back to that place where you first met him, Jacob, in that dream. And God told you that he would bless you. You bargained with God and God's been striving with you this whole time. After Rachel, who was blessed by God, finally to give birth to a son named Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you and I'll be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. If you read the whole text, you'll find out that it's been 14 years of hired slavery. He's had his wages changed 10 different times by his employer. That's never good. He wants to go home. But Laban, who's Jacob's match, says, but, but wait, hang on. If I've found favour in your eyes, please stay. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I'll pay them. What shall I give you? He asks. And Jacob replies, don't give me anything. But if you'll do this one thing for me, the art of the deal... I'll go on tending your flocks and watching over them. He's going to do this for the next six years. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. And through his knowledge of ancient animal husbandry and a little bit of magic, mixed up with Mediterranean trickery. He separates the sheep and grows the flock so that he can get the strong ones and Laban will have the weak ones. The weak animals went to Laban, the strong ones to Jacob. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous. This is Jacob. Came and came to his own large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. He left the promised land with one stick, a staff. And now he's a fabulously wealthy man. But have you realized, and you will realize if you read this whole story, that in the 20 years Jacob is in Syria, God does not speak to him once. It's as if God is silent. There's no record of God saying anything to him at any time in those 20 years. But at this moment, at this time, God says, go back to the land of your fathers and your relatives. I will be with you. I'm the God of Bethel. That's where I met with you. That's where I spoke with you. That's the house of God. That's where I reminded you of my promise. Jacob, it's time to give up your deception. 
Stop deceiving people. Stop trying to arrange your life so that everything works out to your advantage at whatever cost to other people. Jacob listens. Jacob leaves. But he won't enter the promised land until he fully surrenders to the Lord. He's on the run from himself. And here's the point. The only way to run from yourself is to return to God. The only way to run from yourself is to return to God. And that's why the prophet Hosea, centuries later, using Jacob's story to picture the whole story of Israel, says, he found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name, but you must return to your God. You see, friends, it is not enough to have a heritage or a history or even a family of faith. Jacob had all of that, and he was on the run. Whatever your background, however you've been helped by your family's faith or your friend's faith, the word of the Lord to you today is, Jacob went back to God, but you must return to God. You see, friends, it's not enough to know the story of Jacob. The story of Jacob is meant to be the catalyst for change in our own hearts. He did that, but you must return to God. So let me ask you, have you returned to God? And when I say return to God, I don't mean to go to some geographical place although that might be the case, you know, a special moment where you knew that God was very real in your life. I mean in your heart. Does He have all of you all the time? This will be the experience of Jacob when we see what happens to him in part three next week. I hope you'll be here to see how God wrestles him into a true worshipper. But go home today considering these words. The only way to run from yourself is to return to God. Let's pray. So, Father, amidst all the mess and the mayhem of Jacob's family, two decades of trouble... You were present, even if it seemed that you were silent, because you had made promises and you always act faithfully to fulfill your promises of love. And so, Father, as Hosea calls us today, it's not sufficient, although it can be very beneficial to have 
a family history whose hearts follow the Lord. We hear your word this morning, but you must return to the Lord your God. Lord, burn that word in us so that we believe you and follow you truly and wholly. Lord, anyone here this morning who's running from themselves, what they've done, what they've said, who they are, all their fears and failures, we ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would move them to return to you, Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen.